Welcome to A Passion to Serve. My name is Don Kutnicki and I'm the host of the podcast. I've spent the majority of my professional career developing and implementing policies and programs to help break the vicious cycle of poverty that too many people endure. With A Passion to Serve, I bring you stories of individuals from all walks of life who are working towards similar goals and objectives. During our interviews, we discuss employment and training programs, Head Start services, financial literacy instruction, and so much more. And of course, I also speak to the people who are utilizing these programs to help create a better life for themselves and their families. I hope you decide to join me and learn about these amazing people who all have a passion to serve. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of A Passion to Serve. Today I'm speaking with Elizabeth Kerwin, Outreach Coordinator with the National Labor Relations Board. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Don. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today to talk to you. Yeah, we are having this conversation after Thanksgiving break, and we just talked about the, the nice long weekend both of us had and probably eating a little bit more food than we needed to, but had a nice time all the same. Before we get into the, the nuts and bolts about the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, I would love to hear a little bit about your uh, background, some of your professional background and educational background. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I grew up actually in Illinois, and I, I moved to Michigan for work in 2003. Um, but I, I went to the University of Illinois. I have an undergraduate degree in business, and I also got a master's in human resources and industrial relations, um, also from the University of Illinois. Um, so that's kind of my educational history. And when I um, was in grad school, I had the opportunity to do an internship with the National Labor Relations Board in our Brooklyn office. Um, and so I did that the summer right after 9-11, and I totally caught the labor law bug. So mm-hmm. anybody that works in labor law knows exactly what I mean when I say I have the labor law bug. Um, and I knew I, I wanted to work for the National Labor Relations Board really for the rest of my career. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a spot in the Detroit office when I left, uh, when I graduated grad school. And so I've been here in, in Detroit ever since. Um, I started in 2003 as a field examiner doing investigations. And then I became a supervisor, kind of supervising people doing investigations. Um, and then I became the assistant to the regional director in 2016. And, and actually last month, I was just named the regional director for Region 7. So uh, I'm overseeing. Thank you. Yeah, it's really exciting. I'm, I'm very, very honored. Um, so I'm overseeing both the Detroit and the Grand Rapids offices. Um, and a big part of that is outreach. You mentioned that I am also the outreach coordinator and so that's one of the things I love to do, which is what we're doing today. I'm here to talk to you about the NLRB and what we do. Well, what a unique experience to come right out of college and really define your niche. I think that's fantastic. And they're obviously acknowledging and they see the, the really good work you're doing, the way you continue to move up the career ladder. So once again, congratulations. In general, what can you tell me? What exactly is the National Labor Relations Board? What is the mission and the intent of the NLRB? 
So the, the National Labor Relations Board um, is an independent federal agency that was founded in 1935. It's a Roosevelt-era agency, and we protect the rights of employees um, to join together with or without a union to improve wages, benefits, and working conditions. Um, we protect employees, employers, and unions from unfair labor practices, and we protect the right of private sector employees to um, have an election to vote whether they wish to be represented by a union in their workplace. So it's a really um, very, very interesting law. It's the National Labor Relations Act is the law we effectuate. And in addition to, you know, protecting people from unfair labor practices, part of our mission is to educate people about their rights under our law. And I think people are engaged in what's called Section 7 activity, and we'll talk about that more. I think people are encountering this in their workplace all the time, and many of them have no idea that that's what's going on and what their rights are um when when you do engage in that type of activity so we'll talk about that today but it's a really um it's a really cool thing that we do and and the rights that we protect are things that affect people every single day in their workplace so as an employee with the national labor relations board what are some of the primary responsibilities or work activities that you and other staff are engaged in to make sure that employers are adhering to the act? So um, there's a couple things that are sort of our primary roles. One of those is to conduct those workplace elections where um, somebody will file a petition with our office to either vote a union in if they wish to be represented by a union and they don't have one yet. Um, we also handle elections if somebody thinks that they wanna vote the union out. Um, so we run those elections, and um, we've run in Region 7 alone, we've run 57 elections during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, that's been a bit of a challenge, but that's a big role that we serve. The other thing that we do is investigate unfair labor practices. So um, those are all initiated in a regional office by somebody who thinks their rights have been violated. Sometimes that's an individual um, sometimes it's a union, sometimes it's an employer. Regardless of who it is, we investigate it. Um, our, our board agents, you know, they do all kinds of things in these investigations. They take witness statements, they review documentary evidence. Um, sometimes nowadays there's a lot more social media activity resulting in an unfair labor practice. So we're looking at, you know, Facebook posts and Twitter posts and all kinds of text messages um, all the time. Um, so, you know, we're really digging into the heart of what happened, and then we make a decision about whether there's enough evidence to show that the law was violated. And if, if we do think the law was violated, um, we immediately seek to resolve the issue through a settlement. And if the settlement is not successful, then we litigate the case in front of an administrative law judge. You've hit upon this already a little bit, Elizabeth. Can you provide some examples of what would be considered protected activities under the NORB? Yeah, that that one is a really important question. Um, I think there's a misconception sometimes that you have to be in a union 
or involved in union organizing in order to be covered by the National Labor Relations Act. And, and all of those activities are covered. If you're engaged in union organizing activity, you are covered by the National Labor Relations Act. Um, but there's a whole sector of um, activity that's called protected concerted activity. And that's the type of activity that occurs typically when you don't have a union. Um, it's it's uh, work-related conversations conducted on social media, for example, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube videos, um, two or more employees who approach their boss, perhaps about trying to improve their pay, um, two or more employees discussing work-related issues like safety concerns um, with each other or raising it with their boss. Um, an employee speaking to the press about working conditions. Um, and you can imagine all of the protected concerted activity that's happening in workplaces across America right now with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where I said in the beginning, I think a lot of people have no idea they're actually engaging in protected activity, but they are. Um, you know, raising an issue with your boss about a mask policy that affects employees' safety, um, vaccine policies that affect employees' safety. Um, we see cases where, you know, employees are seeking compensation for having to get tested during work time um, or having seeking to have their employer um, pay for the test if they were exposed at work. These are all things that are sort of new with the pandemic, but protected concerted activity is not new. It's been around since the law was was created in 1935, and it happens in workplaces every day. Um, And it's really just a matter of people knowing what type of activity is protected, and most importantly, that you cannot be retaliated against by your employer for engaging in this type of activity. And they can't even really threaten to retaliate against you. Um, for engaging in this type of activity. And, of course, there's been a bit of an uptick in that um, since the start of the pandemic where people are, you know, raising group concerns about terms and conditions of employment. And if they don't know that they're protected from retaliation, then, you know, we can't can't help them. We need them to come to us before we can help them. I initially met you through – the Interagency Migrant Services Committee and the Interagency Migrant Services Committee, we all come together and these are people who work on behalf of migrant and seasonal farm workers in the state of Michigan and you provided a really interesting presentation. And one of the things that you brought up, which was interesting to me, is who is who and who is not covered under the NLRB. And you had mentioned that agricultural laborers are not afforded this protection. And I'm wondering if you could provide a little bit of uh background information as to why that is the case. Yeah, it's a really, um, it's an interesting question, Don. Um, let me give, let me give the listeners a list of who is not covered, just so everybody's on the same page about that. We cover almost every, everybody who works for a private sector employer in this country. Um, it's, it's agricultural laborers who are excluded. Independent contractors are excluded. Railroad and airline employees have a different agency that does what we do, so they're covered by that one. And then um, public sector employees are typically covered by their state uh, labor agency. 
uh, not us, and then supervisors and managers. And I will say um, the law can be very nuanced about every aspect of what I just named. Um, so even if you think you might be an independent contractor, you might not be, and you should you should talk to us about that. Um, but as far as the agricultural laborer exclusion, I really started digging into that after I did this Migrant Services Committee presentation um, because it was really interesting um, looking into the history of, of how this came to be. So what I learned is that in the original bill that was introduced in the Senate in 1935, there was no agricultural laborer exclusion. Um, so agricultural laborers were included back in the introduction of the bill. Of course, when the bill came out, um, agricultural laborers were excluded. It's not really clear why that happened. There was a debate in the House about it. Um, a couple theories have emerged. One is that back in the 30s, of course, farming looked very different than it does now. Uh, most farming was done by small family farms. They employed, you know, ranch hands. Um, and um, so there was some concern, it sounds like, that uh, farmers were not engaged in interstate commerce back then, which is a, a requirement under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, and I think probably the more likely theory is that some congresspersons were worried about the financial stability of small farms and, you know, thought perhaps if agricultural laborers um, were permitted this protection and protection to unionize, um, what that might do to, to the small family farm. So there's a lot of theories out there. There's nothing that I can see that's definitive as to why they were excluded, but they remain excluded. And, and if you look um, on, you know, if you just Google agricultural laborers, labor protections, it's a pretty hot button subject um, on the Internet. There's a lot of people who feel very passionately about about this protection. Um, and, and farm workers have a long history of being active labor uh, proponents. Um, so it's interesting some states do afford agricultural laborer protections. California is one, for example. Um, but federally, they remain excluded. And um, I, I think it is very interesting as agricultural labor has morphed into a more industrial type uh, work. Well, to me, too, it seems like if it initially was a part of the National Labor Relations Act and somehow it, then it became excluded. Has there been much activity or much push um, to try to to change and update the act so it would include egg laborers? Is I'm just I'm really curious about what that history looks like as it relates to agricultural labor. Yeah, it is very interesting. Um, most of our cases are adjudicated in front of a five-member board, which is uh, appointed by the president. Um, and so they they make decisions about the cases that we litigate in front of an administrative law judge. And um, there's not much movement within the case law on agricultural laborers because it's so very clearly written into the statute. Um so you don't see a lot of, of, you know, change in the law in that sense, which means the only change that you will see is through legislation. There has been 
a significant amount of talk about labor law reform in the past year, I would say. Um, something that I think I've heard, you know, described out there is the PRO Act. Um, I'm not aware that the PRO Act has any address, addresses the agricultural laborer issue at all. Um, that's not to say it doesn't, but I think if it did, that would be on people's radar. So um, I'm not aware of any efforts to, to change right. that by legislation, but um, if it were to change, it would, ha it would have to be by legislation because it's, it's a law passed by Congress, so the only way is, is through an amendment. So I'm going to transition to kind of another important piece of, of what the Na National Labor Relations Board wants to do and their intent that I know that diversity and inclusion is very important to how you function overall as, a, as an agency. And you had spoken about some potential internship opportunities just to kind of broaden the net a little bit in terms of who is working and who's represented within the NLRB. Could you tell us a little bit more about internship opportunities? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you asked about that. Um, you know, the NLRB has always been an organization really committed to diverse perspectives, a diverse workforce. Um, what's really nice is to have a presidential administration who is also making that a, a, a main focus of its um, administration. So on June 25th of 2021, um, the presidential administration issued an executive order uh, that really puts pen to paper on having a, a federal workforce that's reflective of what America's culture looks like. Um, so, so we're doubling down on efforts to have, um, you know, diverse perspectives, diverse candidates. And honestly, we're looking for partners to, to help us do that. Um, we have internship uh, programs, not just in our region in Region 7, Detroit and Grand Rapids, but all across the country, regional offices. We have 26 regional offices, plus a number of divisions and headquarters. All of us are looking for good candidates, diverse candidates um, for various, you know, we have internships. We have some paid, some unpaid uh, law, law positions, um, law student positions. And I think that there's a thought that in the coming year, there will also be significant hiring um, for full-time positions as well. So um, we really want to partner with groups that can help us, you know, find diverse candidates. And um, we, we are out there trying to make these relationships and trying to network. But if, if your listeners out there know um, that they can – uh, connect us with a, a good group, whether that's a trade school or, uh, you know, an undergraduate group or a graduate group. Um, we're, we're interested in that partnership. And, and it's not just us. Like I said, every regional office is, is really interested in doing this. Um, some of our internship positions, uh, students can earn credit from their college, um, undergraduate credit, graduate credit, law school credit. Um, some of them are paid. It kind of depends on when you happen to hit the application cycle um, with federal budgeting. But but we do have a variety of experiences available and um, and looking for a variety of candidates. Where can 
where can individuals go to learn a little bit more about internship opportunities and and all of the good work that's being done by the National Labor Relations Board? So the the best place to kind of learn about everything that's going on with us is our website, which is www.nlrb.gov, short for National Labor Relations Board, .gov, nlrb.gov. There is so much information on that website that sometimes you can get lost um, going down all the different breadcrumbs of, of uh, information on there. But it, it tells you a lot about who who we are, what we do. Um, a lot of FAQs on how to get assistance from us. There is a really nifty feature on there for requesting a speaker. Um, you can call your local regional office anytime to request a speaker to come and talk to almost any size group um, about the NLRB or a particular topic with the NLRB. But you can also request it if you're a person who doesn't like to talk to people and you just want to click some boxes. You can do that on our website. Um, NLRB.gov and you can click request a speaker and somebody will get back to you with arrangements for a speaker to come and talk to your group free of charge, totally no cost to you. Um, and it's a really helpful tool to um, educate your group, whichever, whatever group that may be on, on how the National Labor Relations Board works and what your rights are. And, and if you're a business group, um, you know, some, some ways to not violate the act. Same with unions, ways to make sure that you're following all of your obligations to represent members and employees fairly. Um, so lots of very good information on there. I also encourage people to, to establish a relationship with their local regional office. As I said, there's 26 regional offices. Um, if you go to our website, there's a, a link called Find Your Regional Office. And that pulls up a map of the United States, and you can hover over where you work, and it'll show you exactly what office um, controls your jurisdiction. And you can call your regional office. Um, right now, all the regional offices are on telework. But when we are in person, our offices are open for walk-ins um, during business hours, which is great. You can just walk in and meet with somebody and get assistance. We also have information officers on duty um, during business hours. You can call and ask any question, um, and they're happy to offer assistance with filing a charge if you think that your rights have been violated, um, answer questions about the law, point you to maybe the right agency if it's not us. Uh, we're one of the, I think, last remaining federal agencies where you can actually get a human when you call the number. Um, we're really proud of that, and, um, you know, we hope that our resources continue to, to allow us to do that because there's really no uh, customer service like personal service uh, without having to press 27 buttons. That that's a very strong selling point with me because it's so hard to speak to a living, breathing human being at times when you're trying to seek out information. I think getting this information out there and letting people know what's available to them, what their rights are, what their responsibilities are, is so necessary and important. And I'm going to make sure that along with our interview that I will get the website information out there to our listeners as well. Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for spending a little time with me today on A Passion to Serve. Thank you so much. It was great to be here.
Thank you for listening to A Passion to Serve with your host, Don Kutnicki. You can follow A Passion to Serve on Spotify or subscribe to the sites that carry the podcast, such as Apple, Anchor, and Radio Public. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Until next time.